Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners. This is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash lonelyhour to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to The Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it. Thank you for helping us keep this show going. This is The Lonely Hour, produced by Pale Groove. It's our first ever episode, so before I get into today's topic and interviews, I want to tell you what exactly we're doing here. I'm your host, Julia Bainbridge. I'm an editor and a writer, mainly about food, but I also have a lot of feelings, loneliness being one of them. I want to explore that feeling because it's pervasive, but the literature on it is not. Each episode of The Lonely Hour is going to focus on a particular topic, whether it's a community or a profession, an age group, or an activity that seems to arouse feelings of loneliness or aloneness. That could be mental illness, for example. Kat Kinsman, author of the soon-to-be-released High Anxiety, will be on to talk about her struggle with depression. Or it could be social media's effect on us. Instagram star Patrick Janelle will talk about how he draws a line between himself and his online self. It could even be motherhood. Molly Guy of Stone Fox Bride will share some of her thoughts on that experience. The idea is to catalog tidbits on this very human feeling. Because we all feel lonely sometimes, I want to explore how we feel it. Today's episode is on solo travel. More people are traveling alone than ever before. 24% of people traveled alone on their most recent vacations. That's 15% more than just two years ago. And among first-time travelers, solo travel jumped from 16 to 37% since 2013. Again, just in two years. In November, the New York Times' Alan Foyer wrote about a 400-mile drive on Alaska's Dalton Highway, which he calls one of America's loneliest roads. As I mentioned in the story, my girlfriend of the last three years went off on an adventure in Europe for the summer, and I had found myself in a, in a state of distraction when she left that I didn't quite expect to the mm-hmm. point where I was picking up books and putting them down. I was trying to watch Netflix, and it just wasn't working, and I wondered what the hell was really going wrong with me that I, I couldn't work right. And I, I just felt off in a, in a very sort of, you know, profound but ultimately unimportant way. But it, it, was, it was definitely present. And so when I really thought about it, I realized that I had not been on my own for more than, you know, like a week or something like that here or there in nigh on 20 years. You know, I had been married, uh, you know, I'd, I'd lived with various people. And now suddenly I was facing the entire season, um, which was that summer, totally by myself. And it uh, freaked me out for a second that I was reacting like this. And I thought, what the hell is that all about? And so I, I didn't like that reaction. And I decided, well, if, you know, a, a little bit of solitude in my own home for three months is going to rob me of my concentration and focus, well, you know, fuck that. And so I literally went to Google and typed the words loneliest road in America into, you know, the search bar. And 
as I mentioned, up, up came um, US 50 in Nevada. I'd, I'd already been there. And then I started reading about the Dalton. And I thought, okay, so I need to go someplace that's sort of profoundly lonely just to sort of get back in touch with that part of myself because I, you know, one of the, one of the ironies that I didn't really have time or space to mention in the story is that 15, 20 years ago, I loved nothing better than to be alone. I, you know, when I was 19, I dropped out of college and I'd spent almost two years traveling completely by myself. I went all across the world and, you know, I actually, I kept journals from those days and I reread them before I went on the Dalton and, it was all about how thrilled and just full of joy I was to be totally by myself. And I thought that that was some part of myself that I really wanted to reclaim. It just seemed important to me in some inchoate but fundamental way. That's why I convinced the Times Travel section to, to pay me to go up to Alaska. <laughs> It begins about 45 minutes north of Fairbanks when suddenly this beautiful, uh, well-paved, ribbony Alaskan highway just sort of comes to an end with an unimpressive sign announcing your arrival at the Dalton Highway, at which point the pavement stops and for the next 416 odd miles, you're driving on a combination of dirt and gravel with the occasional pothole pavement. And the road travels through some of Alaska's wildest and most pristine country. It goes through a sort of boreal forest of spruce trees, which is you know, glorious and green. It then ascends very rapidly in a series of switchbacks up the Brooks mountain range to a, to an altitude of around about a mile. So, you know, like Denver altitude. And then on the backside of the Brooks range, you enter this very Tolkien-esque misty coastal plain that's all sort of fog and tundra and vast swaths of flatness. And that finally leads to the Arctic Ocean and this sort of massive petrochemical industrial complex in the, in the town of Dead Horse. And the road itself is really the only marker of civilization throughout this gigantic, undeveloped patch of Alaska and is shadowed by the Alaskan pipeline. It's beautiful, it's completely empty, and the road contains what is said to be the longest stretch of unserviced highway on the North American continent, which means the northern segment of the Dalton leaves you without gasoline, leaves you without food, water, flush toilets, cell phone service, police protection, hospitals, internet, even radio. Uh, it's, there's absolutely nothing out there. And should you find yourself, you know, with engine failure or a cracked windshield or a, or a flat tire, you're more or less on your own, but for the good graces of the 
local trucking population should they indeed decide to stop and help you out. At one point you said, uh, all that I had with me was a bag of clothes, some water, cheese and trail mix, and a vague belief that if I was alone, it might as well be very alone and on the road. What was that belief about and why push yourself to be very alone, if alone at all? I, I, I guess it's because as I felt my own discomfort with solitude now and I looked back at this sort of intoxication to solitude, you know, when I was in my 20s, I'm now 44. I, I felt it as sort of a loss of self in some way because I think that, you know, as I read what I had written in my early 20s, it was it was very clear to me in, in an almost embarrassing way how full of self I was. I was both sort of full of myself but also just sort of full of self to the point where there was so much me bursting out at 20 years old that there was no possibility of being lonely because I filled all the space around me. And so the idea of being in a vast emptiness was actually appealing to me at that point. And I looked back at myself now and I thought, well, you know, over the course of when you basically two decades pass and some combination of the self starts to diminish in intensity but also you get a you get a grasp that the world is sort of much larger uh, than you had once expected. And I felt it as a sort of diminution in a way that I didn't particularly like. And so that's why I went about trying to go back to that state of sort of ripeness and bursting out at the seams. And I thought just to put myself back in that position would be uh, just a, a good and healthy corrective. Did you find yourself in any really strange headspaces during that trip? I mean, did you? Yeah, um, you know, I, I started singing to myself at one point just to sort of cut through the boredom. Um, but the headspace that I found sort of most fruitful was completely forgetting about the fact that I was by myself, which was kind of what I was hoping for. Right. Because the, I think the idea is that the experience of loneliness is is being conscious of being alone, right? There's no way to feel loneliness without dwelling on the fact that you are by yourself. Whereas the idea of solitude, I think, is a kind of innocence of, of your solitariness, where you're not even necessarily quite aware of being alone because, you know, you are occupying yourself as much physically, I suppose, as, as mentally. And so... There were definitely times where the aloneness was just sort of merged into the trip itself. There was sort of no distinction between me and the trip that I was taking, uh, which, which was kind of what I was hoping for. Yahoo Travel Editor-at-Large Paula Froelich loves to travel by herself, and you can see this on her adventure travel web series, Abroad, Abroad. You know what it's about? You give yourself a hot minute of reflection. You look back at what happened in the last year, and you say, all right, what did I learn from that? And what am I going to do going forward? And how do I want to be? Like, what things do I want to toss out the window? And what things do I want to nurture or keep? And you know, it's hard to do that when you're surrounded by a bunch of people and you're hungover. 
I know that you, because you're filming all of this, are not alone a lot of the time, but you are depicting an experience as a lone traveler. So what was that decision about? You know, why do that as opposed to a crew of people? Well, here's the deal. I quit my job. I had this, I've had, I've had a couple jobs that I have where from the outside, they look amazing. And from the inside, you're just like, what is wrong with me? One of those jobs was page six at the New York Post, which to this day, people are like, I can't believe you left. And I was like, it's not what I wanted to do. I just wasn't happy. I love the post. I love page six. They deserve somebody who wanted to be there. So I quit. And I started traveling. And before I quit, I'd been on Entertainment Tonight and The Insider and doing things like, so what are you wearing? Being like, i.e., what what did your stylist pick out for you? You know, how was it working with X famous actor? Oh, wait, let me fill in the answer for you. So I had some TV experience, but I was traveling around and I was a contributing editor for Playboy. I went to Iraq on a bus tour for a big cover piece I did for them. I did Vietnam. And I did some, you know, more conventional places. And what I started seeing was not being reflected anywhere. It was what I started seeing was women over the age of 40 were traveling and they were traveling solo whether they were married or not. And I was like, huh. You know, it's like I wrote a piece about it for Newsweek in which I said single independent women are the new gay men. The theory behind that is back in the 90s, advertisers started realizing there's this group of people out there. They can't get married. They don't have kids, have expendable income, a lot of it. And they like really, really nice things. Right. So then, of course, there were a few miscues. You know, Logo at first was just Priscilla, Queen of the Desert on a loop for two years. But then they actually went after the gay male market. And I looked around and I was like, you know what? Women over a certain age either divorced or their kids are out of out of college or, or off in college or their husband's here but they just you know they're independent and I don't know if you know this but women get more independent as they get older and men get more codependent and they like nice things they've got expendable money because right now women can accumulate more than men single women actually make more than men and nobody's talking to us. So I went around to a bunch of places and I was like, we should do this. And I got some really crazy responses from media companies. You know, I was like, here's the numbers. Here's what I'm seeing. And they're like, yeah, Paula, but you're from New York. People in the flyover states don't do that. And I was like, actually, I'm from Ohio and Kentucky. And they would say stuff like, women don't travel alone. They need a buddy. And I'm like, what? This is, but I see this all the time. So I created it with Abroad Abroad, and then I got hired by Yahoo. And at the time, Yahoo Travel was really primarily a booking site. And I came in and made it full editorial. And apparently, it really stuck with people, because within four or five months, we became the biggest content site in the world. The old school way of thinking of it is, Oh, hashtag, you must be such a loser. To be traveling alone, you mean? Yeah, or doing anything alone. Oh, look, she's eating in a restaurant alone. You know, I once had somebody look at me back in the early 2000s visiting LA, and there was this publicist. She goes, what are you doing tonight? And I go, I'm going to go to this restaurant. And she was like, oh, my God, that just opened. It's so great. uh, Who are you going with? And I go, just myself. And she goes, wow. I could never, I would just feel like such a loser. And I was like, thanks. Yeah, no, I'm down. We're good. Thanks. (laughs) 
Well, so you very much like your alone time, it sounds like, and you're comfortable with it. I am and I'm not. You know, like the first trip I ever did alone, I thought I was going to die of shame and mortification. Hmm. By the way, even now, sometimes I'll be like, should I just stay in my room? And I literally have to just be like, put your big girl panties on. You'll know when you're coming back to this place and you should go check it out. What is that about when you think about wanting to stay in your room? Is it social anxiety or is it depression or you just want to sleep because you're busy a lot? What is that? It's a mix of the above, you know, and it's also, there's a side of me I call the dancing monkey. As you can attest, I'm awesome at a dinner party, but it's exhausting to keep people entertained. You know, I was of the, I was raised of the old school of if you're invited, you are supposed to do your part and your part is to make conversation. If I'm on, I'm a great conversationalist. But it's exhausting. And when you're alone, especially in some countries where if you're alone, you are a hooker, like Italy, it's not that easy. Sometimes even like in Mexico City, like there's, I was like, I'm exhausted. I'm going to give myself the gift of sleep for a hot minute. You know, I'm going to give myself the gift of just reflection because I love that. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to figure something out. And, you know, like when I say I travel alone, I'm a travel evangelist. I think everyone's better off if they get up off their butts, get out of an office especially, and go somewhere and do something alone. Of course, people also go, so do you ever hook up on these trips? And I'm like, no, I don't. You know, first of all, none of your business. Second of all, I don't because that's my job and I don't want to be unprofessional. But third of all, most important, that would defeat the entire purpose. The point of the matter is, Loneliness is a deep, dark fear, and unless you cast a light on something and shine on the dark corners, it just gets bigger. I was talking to the travel writer yesterday, and he wanted to start a website about the first time people traveled alone. And he goes, you know, the first trip I traveled alone, I cried every day and cut it short because I was just so miserable. And then on the trips, you know, I met this woman in Mali in West Africa, at first, I thought I was going to hate her. You know, this is another lesson you learn. Snap judgments are bullshit. You know, the snap judgments of like, oh, God, look, this, oh, this person's a hippie. I was raised to not like hippies, okay? It's just, it's a Ohio, Kentucky thing. And, uh, you know, Sue's look like a hippie. And we get off in Bamako, and I see her at the airport. She's like, hey, man, how's it going? And I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. and, and then I was like, shut up. You're going to be with this woman for three weeks. Turns out... She's still one of my best friends. She was 62 at the time. And she was a shrink for the army in San Diego. And we just, you know, and we started talking. And I was like, so are you married? You know, she had like a ring on every finger. She goes, no, I did that once. I don't need to again. And I was like, so do you, are you dating anyone? She goes, yeah, I got my honey, Jim. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, oh, we've been together like 10 years. And I go, wow, well, why isn't he here? And she goes, oh, my Lord, not his thing. Uh-uh. And I was like, why are you? But, and she goes, I always wanted to see Timbuktu. I'm of a certain age. I give myself one big trip a year to do what I always wanted to do. And I, you know, you can sense a theme. I've taken a lot from Suze. Um, mm -hmm. And she goes, and I always wanted to see Timbuktu. And you know what? If he was here, I'd be miserable. He'd be trying to have a good time because he'd want me to have a good time. But I would know he's not really having a good time because it's not his thing. And I'd always be watching him out of the corner of my eye. And right now, I'm having the time of my life.
Randall Reeves plans to circumnavigate both the Americas and the Antarctic in a small sailboat starting in September 2017. He's going to do this alone, and it's called single-handing. A sailor who is a single-hander is not a sailor without a left arm. <laughs> uh, he's a guy or a gal who sails the boat by him or herself. In sailing world, a hand is a crew member. So ah. a single-hander is a guy with one crew member, i.e. himself. It's funny, I've been attracted to it since I can remember. Um, my father was a merchant marine, uh, although he'd come ashore by the time I was born. And he had sailing lore all over the house, a sextant, his uniforms, his medals, uh, really cool navigation books. And so I was attracted to the ocean from a very early age, but we didn't get a sailboat until I was in high school. And I remember specifically the feeling that first day on the river uh, we we lived up the river, uh, up above San Francisco, about 80 miles. So we did. It was all river sailing when I was young, and I remember that feeling of the wind and the sails and the boat heeling over and charging off, and thinking to myself, "Wow, this this is what I was made for." Single-handers oftentimes will talk about the loneliness and combating the loneliness and things like that. The times that I've been out to sea, I have, for the most part, really felt connected, connected to the boat, connected to the ocean. There's wonderful bird life in, in some sections of the ocean. So seeing these great albatrosses fly close to the boat or having the gadfly petrels play in the, the wind vortexes behind the sails, um, seeing the marine life when there is marine life. Uh, the variation of waves from and wind and clouds from one day to the next, that, that all feels, they all feel like friends. It takes a certain kind to be able to plug into that yeah. um, and to feel companionship yeah. uh, from those things, from nature, um, as opposed to feeling the loss of companionship because you're the only human there. So I wonder if there are any personality traits, certainly that you and single-handers share at large, do you yeah. do you think? Well, being single-handers, we don't necessarily know each other. <laughs> right. A bunch of loners for the most part. Uh, but So it's I, not I, like I, hikers, you know, who I, go off on their own I, and then you're meeting them along the trail here and there. And there's a certain kind of, it's sort of lamposted by these little bits of community. I mean, single-handers, you're really out there alone the whole time, I guess. Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. So it's not really much of a community. But I have met some people. And yes, I think part of what we tend to share is uh, kind of classic introversion. One might even call it from a certain perspective, a kind of painful introversion. You know, if you were to compare me to my wife, for example, who doesn't really understand the idea of having too many friends, uh, or uh, has never met a party she didn't like. <laughs> you mm. know, compare that to me. I have two friends, and I kind of think I need to thin the ranks a little bit. I have too many. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's just a different approach. She is an extrovert, and she's charged. She, her batteries are recharged when she spends time with people. And uh, my batteries, I feel, are recharged when I am spending time alone. So there's this, there's, there's this kind of joy in solitude. Aloneness doesn't mean loneliness for me necessarily. It means solitude, a kind of reconnecting, a rejuvenation, a kind of getting in contact with one's own self and one's own feelings. If we take your most recent voyage, which covered 12,000 miles of the Pacific Ocean, 
you completed it over three passages and each took about a month. So it's a month on your own each time. Do you ever really dip down into loneliness? And if so, how do you deal with that or combat it or do you relish in it or? No, I certainly not relish in it. Yes, absolutely. I, I have felt loneliness. Uh, if by loneliness we mean kind of a fatigue of the current condition uh, and uh, a wish to kind of jump out of it. So I actually, I oftentimes am loneliest just before I start. Um, one of the most frightening times of any particular passage is like that day before you're supposed to weigh anchor and go. And the, the whole, uh, the, the kind of the immensity of what you're trying to do can come crashing in and, and you're just, I remember when I left uh, Hanalei, Hawaii, shooting up to Alaska, I was going to go through the North Pacific, which is can be a very rough place. Uh, and, and Hanalei Bay, next to the town of Hanalei, is lovely, tropical, lush, lots of nice people and interesting bars to hang out in. And I just remember thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm leaving all of this comfort, this uh, wonderful, floral, tropical surroundings, and I'm headed out into that and I just, it was terrible. It was just, I, I actually delayed for three days because the weather wasn't quite right. I would tell Joanna, no, I can't leave today. It's a little too windy. <laughs> um, but I, I have always found that once I've started, once I weigh anchor and get out of the ocean and the boat begins to move in the sea and I begin to realize that the boat is doing what it's made for and that it knows what it's doing. And as long as I can keep it pointed in the right direction and stay on board everything will be great. Uh, then I, I start to kind of unwind a bit and really enjoy the passage. And that usually lasts until I'm uh, almost there. <laughs> I remember coming into Hawaii from Tahiti. Uh, I landed on the Big Island. And the Big Island has a huge mountain, Mauna Loa, right in the middle of 14,000 feet. You can see it for miles at sea. Uh, and I, I could see it for three days before I actually made port. It was the most painful three days because I just wanted to be there already. Mm -hmm. The passage felt like it was over, but the wind had died and I couldn't actually get the boat into harbor. Uh, there were, there have been other moments of, uh, <clears throat> there have been other moments of loneliness. Uh, oddly enough, kind of in, in association very loosely with other people. When I left Hawaii to go up to Alaska, I had to go through the uh, tsunami debris zone. Uh, this was in 2012, and in 2011, you'll remember there was a giant tsunami that hit Japan. Right. Pulled off something in the order of 1.5 trillion tons of stuff from the island, which very slowly had been floating toward the east, toward Hawaii, and then toward the U.S. I had to go through that, and I was, I was kind of freaked out. No one knew quite where it was or quite what it was. We saw pictures of, you know, upended ships and uh, floating houses and stuff like that. And I never saw any of that. But what I saw were people's personal effects, you know, hairbrushes, toothbrushes, desks, tables, chairs, shoes. Uh, kind of the common story was when those shoes left Japan, they had people's feet in them. Oh, yeah. So it was very, it was it was a little bit gruesome and, and, and kind of lonely in the sense that I was with the society of people's things, as it were, but the people had been taken. Yeah. It was a very eerie, eerie part of the trip. What do you do to get over those feelings, or is it just time and sort of onward and there are tasks at hand that yeah. take you away? Yeah, uh, it's, 
it's mostly routine. If you read through the, the sailing literature, um, what one common theme is that sailors love routine because there's lots of the sameness, right? It's the same ocean, it's the same sky, it's the same clouds, same waves every day. And, and in my case, I, I tend to, when I'm really enjoying it, I'll zone out. I just love watching what's going on. Yeah. So I have, to, I have to set a schedule. There's plenty to do. There's cooking and cleaning and navigating and setting sail and changing sail and changing course and all kinds of stuff like that. But I have to regiment myself. Otherwise, uh, either when I'm enjoying it, I'll just spend the day gawking uh, or when I'm you know, not enjoying it, it really, it really can get you down. Uh, the passage north from Hawaii to Alaska got very cold and I had forgotten in my two years in the tropics, I had forgotten I didn't have much in the way of warm clothing on the boat. So I got really, really cold <laughs> um, way up north. It got down to, you know, mid thirties and, uh, wow. and that was, you know, rain in mid thirties and being cold for weeks on end that can get you down. So staying connected to what you're doing, um, making sure that the boat is seaworthy, making sure she's going in the right direction. And writing, I have the privilege of being able to post logs from sea, uh, and so I've made a habit of writing every day, uh, not just you know where I am and, and what speed I'm going, but also kind of how I'm feeling and what the day is like and things like that. And that really, I enjoy that a lot, and that really helps keep me connected. We talked about some of your low moments at sea. I want to talk about some of the high moments as well, and particularly the, the high moments that kind of can only come from it being you and the sea, right? I mean, you have mentioned um, in some of your writings on the blog that you know, part of the thrill of these trips is that it's, it's almost more rewarding to be out there on your own and looking at the entire ocean with just you in front of it than, than seeing it with somebody by your side. I mean, would you say that's that's true and if so why part of it is I, I i love practicing self-reliance and so knowing how to do everything uh knowing how to take care of myself on the boat is very rewarding and i think part of it is just sheer selfishness i like to do all that and i don't like to share those activities um and then part of it goes back to the the feelings of of solitude and when I'm out there on my own, seeing the spectacular um, natural world and its changes from day to day, it's just thrilling. I, I have specific, all kinds of specific memories. I remember one day I was I was sailing north uh, to Bora Bora. I'm sorry, north to Hawaii from Bora Bora, and in the morning there was just this amazingly tall and long cloud bank it was from one horizon to the other and it seemed like thousands of thousands of feet high um, just took up the entire western sky and i sailed along this wall of cloud all day long and then had to sail through it and realized it was a big i don't know how this could be but it was just this big circle of cloud i sailed through a clear center and out the other side and just as i came out the other side this giant frigate bird came shooting out of the cloud as well and just it's just a that's one little regular moment in 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 all kinds of you just you're looking at a world that possibly nobody else has seen before you're going to places possibly nobody else has ever been 
uh, and seeing all kinds of fantastic things. Sailing at night one time in the middle of the ocean where there are no islands and, and where the, you know, the sea bottom is a mile or so below you. I remember in the, in the moonlight, I could see a disturbance on the water ahead of me that looked like rocks. Extremely frightening. Hitting rocks in the middle of the ocean would be very bad. Um, uh, but logically, it was impossible because I was in an area of the ocean where there was just no land. But it looked like rocks. And it was too late in my approach to this thing that looked like rocks for me to change course. I went right through the middle of these two odd shapes, which were whales, out in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. And I remember distinctly looking over the side of the boat. I was sitting in the cockpit, looking over the side of the boat to the right at one whale that as I went by, rolled over and gave me an eye and then rolled over again and was gone. And it's just, you get hundreds of little moments like that where you just really feel like you're seeing something intimate and special. So your next trip, let's talk about this. You're calling it the figure eight voyage. It's going to start in September, 2017. You're going to be circumnavigating both the Americas and the Antarctic in a small sailboat passing through four separate oceans and nearing both poles in the process. So all told, you're going to sail 40,000 miles over a year. Why? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we've talked a little bit about the why, you know, why you do this in general, but this particular um, challenge, you know, how did you dream it up? It's a funny question, partly because of my reaction to it, which is, Uh, just indicative of where I come from. Somebody asks me why, I think to myself, well, given time and money, wouldn't anyone want to do this? And my wife, Joanna, has to remind me that no, uh, you know, she says, you're the only person I've ever met who wants to do something like that. (laughs) For me, it is. uh, So my two years in the Pacific were just amazing. Uh, I loved the long passages. I loved learning how to do a long passage, how to, you don't just go from Tahiti to Hawaii straight. You have to sail it and you have to go through the doldrums where there's no wind and you have to think your way through heavy weather and you have to navigate. I taught myself how to uh, use a sextant, the old fashioned celestial navigation uh, on my second voyage and I've really enjoyed that. But that trip was all what we call middle latitude sailing. Uh, It was mostly tropical stuff, which is great. But it isn't the real heavy-duty challenge uh, that a lot of single-handers are looking for. The, the figure eight will leave San Francisco in 2017 and head south and into the Southern Ocean. So if you were to hold a globe in your hand and turn it upside down and look straight down at Antarctica, you'd see that between the bottom of the continents of South America, Africa, and Australia, and Antarctica is a really big body of water. It's a big donut around that continent of Antarctica, which is called the Southern Ocean. Winds tend to blow in a clockwise direction around that ocean uh, and very fast. In the winter, the hurricane force winds are very common. In the summertime, summertime is like December. Um, In the summertime, winds average uh, 25 to 35, 40 knots, 40 miles an hour. Really a lot of wind. And because there's no land to interrupt that wind passage, the waves get very large. It's serious sailing. The Southern Ocean is considered the Mount Everest of sailing. One could say that it's attractive partly because it's never been done. Um, Sailors have gone through the Northwest Passage. Sailors have gone around the Southern Ocean. Single-handers have done one or the other. But nobody's tried to do the two passages in one go. 
in one season. And that's the, that's the attempt is to do this in one year, to time it such that I'm in the South in the summer and the North in the summer is really challenging. Mm. Um, so that's part of it. Uh, but really the attraction for me is having done some serious sailing in the Pacific, having, as it were, gotten my feet wet, I'm really attracted to uh, what we call the high latitudes, far North and far South. There's a certain albatross that lives in the Southern Ocean and spends its life going around and around and around. It's called the wandering albatross. And it sails and swims and it flies constantly. It, it can even sleep on the wing in this environment where waves are 40 feet, waves can be in the wintertime 100 feet. It lives as if it's in its own backyard. I just think there's something thrilling about being able to go to a place like the Southern Ocean and see that. That just really makes my heart beat. Are you a wandering albatross? Um, Do you identify with this animal? <laughs> I definitely identify with that. Um, being able to live easily and handily in what many people, myself included, look at as a, just an incredibly hostile environment. Mm -hmm. I, I just admire that. Thanks for joining us on this first ever episode of The Lonely Hour. For more, head to thelonelyhour.com.